joy uh, and worship the Lord through those songs there. And uh, lovely to have you back here as we open the Word of God now on this Good Friday. And when we think of Good Friday, we really think of redemption, don't we, as Christians? We, 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 we kind of break the weekend into two, rightly. Um, we think of the Lord's death on the cross on Good Friday, and then we think of His victorious resurrection on the Lord's Day, the Sunday. And when we think of Good Friday, we think of the cross, and so we think of redemption. Redemption. One thing that marks a Christian between a non-Christian is that a Christian has been redeemed. There has been a, a an event take place in the life of a Christian that there has been a redeeming, a transaction has occurred. And so as Christians, we rejoice every day in our redemption through Christ's shed blood upon the cross, but we turn our hearts particularly on a day such as this to that. And so I want to spend a little bit of time, just a brief time this morning, looking at the gospel. We have been given a glorious gospel, a pearl of of great price, a wonderful treasure And this morning, I want us to turn to a passage that I believe, like no other, encapsulates the preciousness of the pearl of great price, the gospel. And I want us to look at one verse, and in that one verse, we're going to see from four different angles, like you would survey a diamond, we're going to look at the gospel, the precious gospel, from four different angles that we might see the very heart of the gospel. And we reflect this morning of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, upon the cross. And so here is the very heart of the cross this morning. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where, as I said, we'll look at this precious gospel in this one verse from four different ways and see four different aspects. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The one verse we'll focus on this morning is verse 21. Very familiar verse. It says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Four aspects. The first one is we see in this verse, number one, the Father's loving participation. At the very beginning of verse 21, it says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He. If you look back at verse 20, it says, therefore, we as ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God He, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to become, to be sin on our behalf. The reason we have a gospel, the reason there is good news for a lost and dying world facing a Christless eternity, even this very day, the reason we have good news is because of God, God the Father. Verse 18, look back up there with me. Verse 18 says of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, Now all these things are from God. After speaking about um, Christ dying 
in verse 15 and speaking about God doing a work in our hearts and explaining reconciliation where unholy man is reconciled to holy God. Paul then says there in verse 18, now all these things are from God. They're not from 90% God and 10% man. They're not from 99% God and 1% mankind. All these things are from God. Salvation is from God. All through the Old Testament, literally in countless places, it says salvation is of God. In fact, back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, you recall, where the fall took place, before even announcing the punishment for sin, or before even announcing that there will be ramifications upon um, Adam and Eve, God actually announced prior to that that there is going to be a Savior who is going to save people from their sins, redeem them. And so salvation is God the Father's plan. It is a result of His plan, His doing. For God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever believes on this son shall not perish eternally in hell but have everlasting life. Salvation is from God's plan. This is a glorious and most precious gospel, and it begins with God the Father in his involvement. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The second facet and aspect as we look at this glorious gospel, this pearl of great price, is number two, we see in this verse next, the son serving as a sinless substitute. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now, Jesus knew in his mind what sin was. That's not what Paul is saying here. Jesus, what Paul is saying here is Jesus did not know sin as in, in a partaking of sin. He didn't have a relationship with sin. Jesus never once sinned in thought. Jesus never sinned in word. Jesus never sinned in deed. Jesus never was able to sin in thought, word, or deed. He was truly the sinless God-man, truly God and truly man. Jesus, Jesus was um, uh, sinless. He never once sinned, and Jesus looked in the eyes of the very men, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, who were uh, trying him to crucify him, running him through trials and then ultimately crucifying, he looked them in the eyes, we read in John chapter 8, verse 46, and he said to them, who, can, who of you convicts me of sin? They simply couldn't reply. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, says of Jesus the Savior, 700 years before Jesus the Savior came here on earth, it says of him in that verse that he committed no sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in all ways, 
like we were, yet he was without sin. And so Jesus was sinless. That's necessary for he needs to be unlike us. But at the same time, Jesus was also like us. And that too is necessary because in order to be a substitute, by very definition of the word substitute, he needed to be like us. No good there being a savior who was totally unlike us, acting as our substitute. We need a substitute just like us. This is why Jesus became the God man. This is why he became in that hypostatic union, a mystery, truly God and truly man. Because in order for him to be a substitute, he needs to be like that which he is in the substitution of. You and I have sinned, haven't we? You and I are unable to save ourselves. The reason we're unable to save ourselves and the reason why every other religion is false is because we have sin and one who has sin is not able to save themselves from sin. We need a sinless substitute. Our sin needs to be paid for. And we have a substitute who has no sin, no blemish, no default or defect rather. We have the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, Jesus at Christmas time, we think about his birth and his virgin birth. Well, his virgin birth is miraculous in many ways, and it's remarkable in this way. The fact that he was born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit means that he, while being man, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, receive what we receive because we receive Adam's human nature and his guilt. But Jesus doesn't have any of that. So he can maintain being truly God and truly man and sinless. Remarkable, really. So we see that Jesus is the sinless substitute here. He hung on the cross in our place, on our behalf, on the cross. But what exactly took place on the cross? Well, that's where we now see the next aspect, the third aspect, as we survey this gospel treasure. And it's number three. We see here now in this one verse, verse 21, the placing of our sins upon the substitute. Look at it again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, to be sin, to be sin. When God so loved the world and sent his son into the world, he sent one who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Wow. That, 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 that truly is incredible. So we don't wander into error. We need to make sure and be precise about what this exactly means here. There was not even a millisecond on the cross that Jesus was not holy. There was not even a millisecond on the cross that Jesus was not perfect. Jesus did not become a sinner on the cross. Instead, what this verse is teaching us is that God the Father imputed, 
Sometimes that can be an interesting word. What, what does it exactly mean? Well, it means credited or clothed or charged to the account of. God the Father imputed the sins of all those who were given to the Son by the Father. Scripture clearly reveals to us in countless places before time began, meaning that God took all the guilt and all the penalty for sin for the sin of a countless myriad of people. And he laid that, he imputed that, he charged that upon Jesus upon the cross, upon his very shoulders. And on that cross, Jesus endured the eternal wrath and judgment for each and every sin. Remarkable, truly remarkable. We were by birth and by having Adam as our representative, having Adam as our head, we were imputed with Adam's sin and guilt. It spread through all, all of mankind. And on the cross, Jesus was imputed with all the sin and guilt of his people. The penalty for our sin was laid upon him. And on that cross, as I said, he endured the wrath in our place. We know very well, don't we, Jesus' cry on that cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can ask a lot of questions about what took place there, but let me tell you this. What took place there was prior to this, prior to Jesus hanging upon the cross, Obedience to the Father's will for Jesus always meant perfect communion with the Father. But here, for the first time, obedience to the Father's will didn't mean that. It meant a severing of fellowship with the Father. As the Father poured out the wrath of God as the sins of all those who would believe was poured out upon the Son. There was a severing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason the, per the person who puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus finds reconciliation with God, peace with God, is because God can then legally declare that person forgiven and free. That's what's good about Friday. That's what's good. Because our sin, the sin of the believer, was laid upon Christ and he acted as our substitute. That's the message of the cross. That is the good news. But that is only half the news. That's only half the verse. There's another aspect of this glorious gospel. We've, we've taken three looks at the aspect of this precious gospel, and it's great news. In fact, it's the best news the world has ever received, but it's only half the news. There's another aspect, and it's number four. The fourth aspect, we see here from this one verse, the placing of Christ's righteousness upon us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that 
we might become the righteousness of God in him. We've seen that it's God the Father who initiates this. He made him. We've seen the son serving at the, as the sinless substitute, that he was without sin, that he needed to be a substitute like us. We've seen that our sin was placed on the shoulders of Christ. And you would think that's enough, right? You would, you would think that, that there it is. Sin has been atoned for, but it's not. It's not enough. Why? And the reason is this, because not guilty is not good enough. Not guilty is not good enough. I was so indebted to the works of Dr. Stephen Lawson, a dear friend of ours, and Pastor Mike Riccardi, a dear friend of ours, um, the work that they were able to pull out from this particular verse here. Because you know what? It's not enough. To, to, be, to be not guilty is not enough. We were imputed with sin, Adam's sin and guilt. And on the cross... Christ was imputed with our sin and guilt. But the law of God demands that there be both a positive requirement and a penal sanction. Now, what I understand, what I, what, what I mean by that is this. Positive demands refer to how we should live. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a positive requirement of the law. None of us have done that. We fall short of the glory of God. We sin. All have sinned. Penal sanctions means that there is a punishment for violating God's law. So if all we had was not guilty, if all we had was just a clean slate, that's not enough. There's no positive requirement. There's nothing, there's no righteousness that, that is involved if that's the case. But there needs to be a positive requirement credited to us. The positive demands of the law require that there is. And because you and I are in Adam outside of Jesus, because you and I are just lost and hopeless without Christ, there is no positive requirement because all there is is penal sanction. Guilty. But not guilty is not enough. You see there when it says, so that we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God there is referring, is speaking of the righteousness of God himself being God. Jesus is obviously perfectly righteous. But we would be, amiss and we would be in error if we somehow just thought that the righteousness that we receive from Christ is because of his deity. Well, then we would immediately have a substitute that's not like us. We would immediately have a righteousness that, 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 that is totally only from Christ's deity. But Jesus was truly God and truly man, and he needed to be in order to save us. Why wouldn't that do? We wouldn't have a savior just like us. But you know what? We do. And here is where this righteousness comes from. This righteousness comes from Jesus' perfect life. He lived the life that you and I could never live. 
He, he lived a perfect life and fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law of God. You and I could never do that. We, were, we would be lost and helpless, but Jesus did it on our behalf. Remarkable. In, in, in the desert, tempted by the devil, the, the first thing Satan says to him is, turn that stone into bread. Satan knew Jesus was hungry. He knew he'd been out there for 40 days. He knew that he was suffering. And so he says, turn that stone into bread. Why? Because Satan knew that if Jesus used his divinity to escape that whole endeavor, then we would never have a substitute who could save us and give us a righteousness. But Jesus in his humanity endured. Jesus fulfilled all the laws of God that you and I could never fulfill. And so upon conversion, upon putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, there is a double imputation. You and I, our sins are laid on him. And his righteousness is laid on us. That we can be both forgiven and that we can be clothed with a foreign alien righteousness. And therefore, the, we then stand not guilty and without blemish. That's Good Friday. That's what makes Friday good. The Lord Jesus loved his people. He laid down his life for his sheep. And I just ask you, you can see me and hear me. Have you laid down your life at, at the foot of the cross? Have you come realizing that you are a sinner, that your sin has separated you from a holy God, and that by coming, and confessing your sin and confessing your need for a savior and realizing that there is only one savior in this world. Government cannot save you. Any other false religion cannot save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You need to come by faith today. You need to come and trust in the Lord Jesus today. That he took the penalty of your sin, that you were guilty, and all that guilt and the penalty for your sin was laid upon him, and that on that cross he bore that penalty in your place as your substitute, and you need to believe that by faith, and that in believing in that, you then believe also that he rose again victorious, and that's where we're heading Sunday because Sunday's coming. This is Good Friday, and that's the greatest message. That's four aspects of the glorious gospel. I pray that you would come to him. Church family, I know that you've come to him. Let me encourage you. Look back up at verse 14. Verse 14. It says this, For the love of Christ compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they might, they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. If you and I, dear believer, if we fill our minds with the incredible, indescribable, 
immense love of Jesus for us. We will be filled with a joy insurpassable. There will be no storm that can rattle us. There will be nothing that can come. For there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Fill your mind this day and every day with the love that Jesus has for you. Well, it's been wonderful to gather with you this morning. Trust you have a wonderful day. Look forward to connecting with you virtually for now. And love you guys so much. Love from Lisa and I to the entire church family. We miss you. And we look forward to that day when the Lord will have us together again physically. But until then, it's Good Friday and Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for the gospel. We say thank you for the good news. Lord, we rejoice that we are redeemed, that you did it, that salvation is of the Lord. May you get all the glory. May we not even try and attempt to claim anything, but may you receive all the praise because you did a mighty work in us. We simply responded because you, out of your love, you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. And so we praise you and we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone who is listening or will listen, who doesn't yet know the Lord Jesus. May they see the beauty of being reconciled to a beautiful God. And may they see that the grounds for that reconciliation comes through the work and the person of the only Savior the world has ever had and will ever have, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.